Zion, God's vineyard. There's an old saying, with great privilege comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And the meaning of that saying is as simple as this. Let's say, for instance, as parents, if we bless our children with all the comforts of life and financial security, then we have a right to expect from them things like respect and gratitude, thankful living. And so we would expect from our children good grades. We would expect that they would uh, do their share of the chores at home. We would expect free babysitting as they get older. We would expect good behavior. We would expect them to make good and godly choices because with great privilege comes great responsibility. Or if as an employee we are promoted by our boss, we're given a substantial raise, same thing applies. To then at some point to say to our parents or to our boss, well, who are you to ask anything of me? I don't owe you anything would be grossly disrespectful grossly ungrateful and we should not be shocked if there were serious consequences to our behavior if we responded to our bosses or our parents kindness in this way and that's where Israel was headed they had held a very privileged position for centuries they had been God's treasured possession they were his vineyard and they failed to return to him the fruit that was rightfully his things like gratitude and obedience the promotion of his holy and unique name. And they chose time after time to walk in disobedience. And despite the continual warnings and calls to repentance through God's servants, the Old Testament prophets, Israel continued to persist in their stubbornness. And at the time of Jesus, not much had changed. The religious leaders opposed God's Christ again and again. And now... They had even begun to plot how to destroy Jesus it, because it was repulsive to them when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey that all the people came out and they spread their cloaks on the road and they were waving palm branches and they were praising God. And this actually appalled the religious leaders of Jesus' time. And they were appalled by his cleansing of the temple. And instead of rejoicing in what was taking place, they were angered and they were jealous of Jesus. Jealous for their position and they were worried about how Rome was going to react to these things. And so Jesus tells them this parable. Intended to show them their unfaithfulness, their blindness, their disobedience. But congregation, we too can learn from this as well. That we would never take our blessings for granted. That we would never forget the one to whom we owe all obedience and thankful living. Our theme this morning, as we summarize Mark 12, verses 1 to 12, is this. Jesus proclaims the consequences of refusing to give what we owe to God. Jesus proclaims the consequences of refusing to give what we owe to God. We'll see two points. We'll see the first point this morning and the, and the second one this afternoon. And the points are these. In the first place, God's incredible patience. And the second point, which we'll see this afternoon, Lord willing, God's eventual judgment. But as Jesus proclaims the consequences of refusing to give what we owe to God, we see in the first place God's incredible patience. Now, the parable of the Wicked tenants, or the tenants, is a simple story, as all parables are, but its implications 
are deep and convicting. In fact, we see how deep and convicting these parables are by the reaction of the religious leaders of Israel. In verse 12, we read that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Why did they react this way? Because they recognized, they understood that this parable pointed an accusing finger against them. And they met his words with anger and with seething vengefulness in their hearts. Well, again, as in all parables, Jesus uses imagery with which every listener would have been familiar. Apparently in those days, it was quite common for a rich landowner to live very far away from his land. In some cases, there were foreigners who leased their land to tenants to work it in their absence. And the arrangement was very simple. The tenants could, on the one hand, gain a livelihood and provide for their families from the produce of the fields. And in turn, for using his land, they would hand over a portion of the harvest to the landowner as rent. Well, before he left, the owner in this parable planted this vineyard And he went to to great lengths to ensure its safety and its productivity. He encircled it with a hedge or a fence to keep out thieves and animals. And in anticipation of a successful crop, he even digs a wine press. And for further protection, the landowner also erected the customary watchtower. And a watchtower was built out of stone in those times, boys and girls, and about twice the height of the grape vines, which would allow the caretakers a vantage point to look over the, 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 uh, the vineyard to see if there were any approaching animals or thieves. Well, the point of all these details being related in the parable of Jesus was how much care the owner devoted to his vineyard. Jesus describes here the vineyard's excellence. The owner left nothing undone in his preparation. He doesn't rent some rundown, fixer-upper vineyard. It's perfect in every way. And then he leaves for a long journey. And the tenants don't hear from him until the time of the harvest was approaching. Now, grapes take four years to reach maturity, And all this time, the renters are left to carry out their task, to take care of the owner's vineyard. But the time of the harvest arrives. And the owner, and keep in mind that this was his right, the owner sends a series of servants to collect his portion. The servants come as representatives of the owner in his name, And they have the right, because they come in the owner's name, to demand that the tenants give what they had agreed to give. But as we see in this parable, it doesn't go that way. The first one, Jesus tells us, they beat. And the Greek word means whipped or flayed. And flaying um, portrays a kind of whipping that takes the skin off. And so it was a terrible whipping. And they sent him back empty-handed. Well, the landowner then sends another servant. And this one, we read in verse 4, they wounded in the head and they sent away dishonorably. And head in the Bible is symbolic of authority. And so it was very symbolic that they struck him on the head, despising his uh, right over them as his master's ambassador. Well, at this point, we we have to say that the landowner is incredibly patient, much more patient than 
we would, have, we would admit any one of us would be, because we would expect that the landowner at this point would intervene and he would bring vengeance upon these wicked tenants. A couple of things we need to keep in mind here, though. This is a parable, and parables are not always completely true to reality. They paint uh, imaginary scenarios to make a point. <clears throat> the second thing we need to keep in mind is this parable is a picture of God's incredible patience, which we'll get to in a moment. And so the owner continues to send more servants, some of which we're told they beat, some they kill, until he's left with only one option. He would send his son. These former servants were representatives. They had a delegated authority. The son is blood. He is the heir of the vineyard. As bad behaved as the tenants had been, they would not, you would think, dare to harm or disobey the owner's son. Surely they would listen to him. Now, we'll pause here in the parable to ask what all this means. What is the picture being painted here for us, at least so far? Well, Jesus is illustrating the incredible patience of God with his people. The parable, as in all parables, turns out to be not merely a dramatic story. There's a deeper meaning, deeper implications here. In line with the Old Testament prophets, Jesus is bringing a charge against Israel's leaders at this point in this parable, the charge of religious mismanagement, presently and all through history, in fact. And to do this, he is drawing together a number of Old Testament passages. Isaiah 5 is perhaps the classic passage, passage and actually forms the backdrop of this parable. Its similarities are striking. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 2, and then in verse 7, we hear this. And so this, uh, this prophecy of Isaiah forms the backdrop. It's a foreshadow of uh, what Jesus tells here. Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. God speaks these words through his prophet Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile field. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then in verse 7, we hear, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Israel, we're told here, this is clarified for us in the Old Testament, that Israel was God's beloved vineyard. God had painstakingly planted them in Canaan, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And he had blessed them in every way. And he had put his hedge of protection around them from their enemies. And he himself was their watchtower. And as members of his kingdom, they were then obligated to produce fruit for him. Fruit like righteous living, faithfulness to his covenant. They were to be distinguished from all the peoples all around them. They were never to indulge in things like idolatry. They were to be living testimonies to his power, his greatness, his superiority over all the gods of the pagan nations. We hear as well in Micah 6, verse 8. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, 
but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That was the expected fruit of Israel. But when God looked for fruit, again, which was his right as owner, he found none. And as owner, he would have been within his right to remove or destroy Israel from before his face. And yet the amazing thing is that he continued to show incredible patience toward his vineyard, his people. He sent them a continuous stream of servants, that is, prophets, to remind them of their covenant obligations. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know what the reaction of Israel to Israel's servants were. Jesus reminds the religious leaders in this parable. They beat them, they stoned them, they killed them. A couple of examples for you. In 2 Chronicles 16, we read of the prophet Hanani taking Asa, king of Judah, to task for relying on the Aramites and not on the Lord. What was the reaction of the king? Repentance? Hardly. He tosses God's prophet into prison. In 2 Chronicles 24, we read of the people of Judah abandoning the temple of the Lord, worshiping the pagan gods, rejecting the prophets. God then raises up the prophet Zechariah, who announces to them God's anger. What does this earn him? We read that they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. The prophet Jeremiah called Israel to repentance. What was their response to him? They beat him. They put him in stocks. They dropped him in a well. The book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, tells us something of what happened to the Old Testament prophets and the messengers of God. Hebrews 11, verses uh, 36 and following. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's how Israel treated God's prophets again and again and again. Even the forerunner of Jesus, the final prophet before Jesus, John the baptizer, was accused of having a demon. Time after time, God had sent His prophets uh, to to call Israel to repentance, to fruit-bearing. But they hardened their hearts instead. And now God had sent one last representative. He had sent His own Son. Surely they would listen to Him. But we know how that worked out. We remember it every Good Friday, don't we? But congregation of Christ, this same God of incredible and unbelievable patience is the one who calls all men to repentance and faith in His Son today. Listen to 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Second Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is why God continues to exhibit incredible, unbelievable patience toward this world. And because He wants all men to turn to Him and live, to repent of their sins, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so He allows this world to continue. 
and congregation, when we consider the world in which we live, we have to wonder how God could exercise such restraint. Think about the brutal and unjust attacks against Christians in Islamic and communist and Hindu countries. The killing of civilians by fanatical extremists. Things like child slavery, sex trafficking, the scammers and the drug lords, the demands for even more freedoms when it comes to abortion, the continual growth and use of the pornography industry, and the resulting damage to families and children. You know, they say that the next push, the next frontier, will be for the rights of pedophiles. That's the kind of world we're living in and continue to live in. And we can go on and on with example after example of how vile and wicked this world is, how ungodly and anti-Christian. And we wonder sometimes, how is it that God does not destroy it all? Here's the answer in our parable. Because as pictured here, the Lord God of our salvation possesses immeasurable patience, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the context of the whole Bible, that means that all of the elect must be born into this world and come to faith in Jesus. Until then, the world will continue, as wicked as it is. But then, beloved of God, we have to remember that God is also incredibly patient with us, with you and me. With you and me who have the truth and do not live it so often. We who keep the gospel to ourselves more often. Whose religious life can be mostly Let's face it, what we do on Sundays for a couple of hours, whose spiritual growth is quite often slower than molasses, who continue to hold on to biblically condemnable habits and attitudes. We who have sat under sound preaching for years, who have been catechized, we have made profession of our faith, and still, after so many years of training and teaching, we still can't defend basic Christian doctrines. Is God not incredibly patient with us as well? Who are prone to use the sacraments superstitiously? Who fail to love our wives as Christ loved the church and love our husbands and respect them and submit to them as the church submits to Christ? We who are not as passionate about leading our children to Christ as we are about hockey, whose prayers quite often are just vain repetition and babbling. Congregation, thank God that He is incredibly patient with us. Because think about it, if men were in charge, they would have torched the whole deal a long time ago. But the Lord in His mercy continues to send preachers and teachers continually crying out, make straight what long was crooked, be reconciled to me, repent, repent, repent. Take heed to your soul and live. Jesus himself calls us over the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, Christian, follow me. Let us listen to that call. Let us take heed to his servants. Let us make every effort to give to God his fruit. Let us give to him what is his due. But what is the fruit that God comes looking to us for? Well, Paul will give you a few examples. Paul talks about the fruits of righteousness, and this is in Philippians 1, verse 11. 
And so what does that mean? Holy, self-denying living. And, and this is not to say that many of us are not striving for this. Many in the church are striving for holiness and godliness. This is not to paint everyone with the same brush. There are commendable things being done in the church, wonderful efforts being made. But congregation, the fight for our souls and for the truth, we have to realize is only going to get harder. Let us continue then to pursue the fruits of righteousness, all of us, because God is patiently expecting what we owe to Him still today. Paul speaks in Colossians 1 verse 10 of being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so on the one hand, we're to be, good, uh, we're to be showing kindness to our fellow believers, to the unchurched neighbors around us. We must be good influencers. That's the catchword today, right? Everybody wants to be an influencer on YouTube and the internet, right? We have to be good influencers of others by our living, being salt and light in this world for Christ. In these times of restrictions, for instance, it's important, it's vital that we as Christians lead the way in exhibiting our trust in God, in acts of kindness to the financially challenged, to the sick, to the lonely, the shut-in, the elderly. We do this, this in the name of Christ and, and, and uh, so that the name of Christ may be not only promoted but advanced. On the other hand, we're to be learning and growing ourselves. And today we have no excuse whatsoever. We can not only read today because we have access to so much reading material, but there are podcasts, there are sermons online, there are Bible studies that we can do. And so we ought to be striving after these things. All of this is fruit that the Lord looks for from us. Let us also be striving, congregation. And we all need this reminder from time to time. Let us all be striving. It is our Christian duty to make the work of the office bearers a joy, not a burden submitting to them. This is fruit that God expects and looks to, uh, to us for. As the deacons encourage us in our giving, as the elders encourage us in our living, let us make their work a joy, not a burden. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15, speaks as well of offering to God the sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And so he's talking here about worship. Our worship must be zealous and joyful and sincere and thankful and passionate and, of course, reverent. Think as well of what Jesus says in John 6. In John 6, verses 28 to 29. We read here, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is, congregation, the greatest work, the greatest fruit that we need to be showing in our lives. Let me ask you, when God looks into your heart and mine, does he see an overwhelming love for Jesus? Is your heart a fertile field where trust in God's Savior grows? What about confidence in Christ's salvation? If you're like me, and I suspect you are, because we're all fallen human beings together, if you're like me, it's a constant fight to suppress the thought, well, God loves me when I'm good, and He hates me when I'm bad. But that's not it, really. That's not what the Bible teaches Salvation is always about grace. 
God's favor is always about God's grace. He's looking upon us and extending to us mercy that we do not deserve. Undeserving mercy to undeserving sinners. That's what grace is. And so we need to be praying every day. You and I. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Remember as well, as we ponder about this fruit that we're to offer to God, remember as well that while man looks at outward appearances, God looks at the heart. Remember that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. That He despises praise that is on our lips only while our hearts are far from Him. He commands certainly that we render to Caesar what is Caesar, but to God what is God's. Jesus, as we heard, summed up our duty to God in two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. God comes looking for this fruit in our lives, which is his right as owner. There's so much more to say, but we'll end with this for now. God comes looking for his due from us every day and especially every Sunday. Let us be searching our hearts. Let us be confessing our sins. Let us be looking to Christ's Holy Spirit. Let us be carefully preparing our hearts for worship. Let us be carefully and prayerfully considering what we owe to our heavenly landlord. And let us be thankful every day for his incredible patience with us. Amen.